little boy went into the kitchen, found his mother washing dishes, and I burst into the room and he said, Mother, where did I come from? And she recognized this is one of those uh, golden teachable moments. And so she dried her hands on the hand towel and gathered the little boy up on her lap and she began to tell him all about uh, human origins in a way that would be appropriate for him. And about halfway through, he got this real puzzled look on his face. And he said, no, no, Mom. He said, uh, Jimmy, my friend, came from Schenectady, New York. I want to know where I came from. Um, it would be interesting to find out where you came from. Yeah, I wish we could go around and have all of you tell us where you were born. I was born in Dallas, Texas, and uh, raised in and around that uh, city. Uh, most of us were born wherever we were born as uh, kind of an accident of history. Our, our mother happened to be there at the time. Uh, I have a friend that I grew up with who was born in the back room of a bar, because that's where his mother was when her time came. Jesus, we know, was uh, born in Bethlehem. I suppose everybody knows that. I can't think of uh, anyone that isn't aware of the fact that he was born in, little, in that little town. But that was no accident of history. He, he was not born in Bethlehem because Mary happened to be there when the time came for him to give birth. 750 years before Jesus was born, the place of his birth was predicted. That uh, prediction is found in the little book of Micah. And I'd like to invite you to turn there with me, if you will. Micah, and we'll uh, begin with the first chapter, though the prophecy is found in the fifth chapter. Micah may be a little hard to find. It's one of those small books right at the end of the Old Testament, about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. Uh, if you can find Hosea, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Whenever we think of prophets, we normally think of uh, wizened old prudes, uh, dried-up uh, clerics, strange uh, people standing on street corners, bearing uh, placards that say, Repent. Actually, uh, prophets were just ordinary citizens. Most of them were quite young and usually gainfully employed in some other profession. Uh, they weren't paid to be prophets necessarily. Isaiah was a historian. He wrote history. He was the court historian for Hezekiah, the 8th century king. Amos was, uh, was a farmer, raised figs. God uh, called him out of the fields to be his spokesman. Most of these prophets speak of their concern as a heavy burden. They use a Hebrew word, Massah, that means uh, an almost unbearable burden, crushing load. Usually, as a result of their walk with God, they gain some insight into the world around them and what what was going on, and they carried with them this heavy burden of love and, and uh, concern uh, for their people. And so it was with Micah. Micah lived in the city of Morasheth Gath, a little border town, uh, sort of out in no man's land, part of the uh, disputed territory of Judah that Egypt and Philistia and the Judeans sometimes fought over. 
town uh, sort of like uh, Dodge City, I suppose. Maybe, uh, maybe Micah was the sheriff. I don't know. But in any case, he saw something that his countrymen at that time didn't see, and he began to speak out, and he began to write about his, uh, his concerns, saw the eminence of war. Assyria was the power then, the world power off to the, to the east. These kings that we read about in history books, Tiglath-Pileser II, Shalmaneser, Sargon, these were, the, these were living uh, emperors during that time, the kings of the Assyrian Empire. We're right in the middle of the, of the 8th century B.C. When, when Micah began to write. Uh, he saw terrible uh, uh, corruption in high places and awful violence. Ugly, terrible things uh, happening, oppression of, of the weak and a breakdown of law and order and justice. It's the sort of thing that's happening in our, our country. We see it all around us. Carolyn and I just received word this last week that the dear friends who introduced us to one another, uh, we were in their wedding. I was Richard's maid of honor and she was... Er, no. <laughs> They're a very unusual couple. <laughs> Can't believe I said that. <clears throat> best man. You know what I mean. I, I was Richard's best man. She was Helen's uh, maid of honor. And uh, just a wonderful, lovely couple. And he's been very successful. And they have a lovely home on the north side of uh, Dallas. And just this last week, three men broke into their room, uh, murdered Helen, and shot my friend, friend Richard in the back twice. He is probably paralyzed for life. Just senseless. Absolutely no reason for that to happen. And uh, this is the sort of thing that, that we're seeing all around us today in, in our world. And this is what Micah saw. And his heart was broken by it. And he began to, he began to speak out. Now I want to begin with chapter 1 because I want you to see what leads into the story uh, that centers around Bethlehem. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord given to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. These were the kings of Judah under whose reign he prophesied. The vision he saw concerning Samaria, which was the capital of the northern, uh, the northern country of Israel, and Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah in the south. Hear, O people, all of you. That's the key word of the book. occurs a number of times, chapter 3, chapter 6. Listen up, he says, hear. Hear, O people, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all who are, who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And then he describes how the Lord is coming in judgment. Verse 6, chapter 1. Therefore, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. Isaiah and Hosea had predicted the imminent destruction of the northern kingdom and, their, and the capital city of Samaria. Hosea or Micah indicates that uh, it, it, was, it would certainly happen. The nation was beyond uh, reclamation, as he, as he puts it later. Your wound is incurable. Nothing that can root out this, this awful evil in your midst. Judgment's coming. And uh, this, uh, Micah prophesied about 740 B.C., 722 B.C., just a few years after he uttered this prediction, the uh, Syrians uh, sacked and burned the city, city of Samaria and reduced it to a pile of rubble. Samaria, as Chesterton said of London, was morally bombed before the bombs began to fall. 
This was simply the, the judgment on a city that was beyond help. But um, Micah is anything but gleeful, verse 8. Because of this, I'll weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It's come to Judah. In other words, it's touching his country as well as the country to the north. When, when God must act in judgment, it, it should not fill us with glee. It ought to break our hearts. It ought to make us sad that our country is becoming so corrupt that God is going to have to judge us someday. It seems almost inevitable. I've read some of the reviews of Madonna's, uh, as the reviewers put it, gender-blending video. is hitting the, uh, the top of the charts. Everybody's rushing out to buy this uh, this this, uh, this video, and uh, the pain that it ought to, to give us, it's, it's very real. We ought to feel it because this is nothing more than an effort of the evil one to trash and destroy the lives of our young people. And uh, it saddened Micah to see what was happening in, in his country. Uh, it says, uh, he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, it's reached the very gate of my people. See, it's not Sweden, it's not the Netherlands, it's happening here. That's what ought to sadness. Now, Micah does an interesting thing. Uh, This next section is, as far as we know, the first evidence of punning in literature. Micah's a very clever fellow. And he brings together a number of puns. Noel Webster uh, says that puns are the lowest uh, form of wit. But actually, I enjoy puns a lot. Uh, Yeah. I heard just uh, recently of an Indian who had uh, chronic indigestion. And he went to his shaman to get some help. And uh, the doctor gave him a rawhide strip and told him to bite off one inch every day, chew it, swallow it. He worked his way through... uh, the thong until uh, he came to the end of the week and he still had troubles with uh, his stomach and so he went to see the shaman to ask for another prescription and he said to the doctor the thong is ended but the malady lingers on (laughs) that's a pun or more apropos of the season there is that story about the Russian who looked out of his window and uh, his name was Rudolph and he saw it was raining and he said to his wife, it's raining. She said, no, it's snowing. He said, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah. Verse 10, tell it not in Gath. Tell it not in Gath. Uh, Gath's the Hebrew word for tell. Tell it not in the place to tell. Weep not at all in the Greek version uh, has what was probably in the, in the original. Weep not in ako. Ako is the Hebrew word for weeping. Weep not in weeping. In Beth Ophrah, Ophrah is the word for dust. Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in Shafir. Shafir means pleasantness. It's like saying... Uh, uh, walk naked through the streets of Modesto, I guess. There's no peace in Concord. Things would be very unpleasant in Pleasanton. Uh, there would be no joy in bliss. 
those who are in Burley will be weakened. It's that sort of thing. He plays on the names of these towns to get the message across. Things are going to be very, very difficult because uh, judgment is coming. Verse 16, shave your heads in mourning. For the children in whom you delight, make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. So here he predicts an event that is uh, much, much later than this time, 586 B.C. We'll get more detail in a moment. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Naked, uh, greed, an acquisitive spirit, a desire to fill their life with things because God's no longer there. If we don't make room in our life for God, if we don't take time for him, then we're, we're going to try to fill it with something else. Uh, and as G.K. Chesterton said, when we do not have God in our life, we, try, we cannot fill it with an infinite number of gods. We try to fill it. But there is that vacuum that only God himself can fill. That's what these people were doing. They were desperately trying to fill up their lives with things and acquire more property, more material things. But they were becoming more and more empty. Therefore, this is the second uh, therefore in the book. The first is in one six. In 2.3, therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. Now, while this was going on, while, while Micah was prophesying, uh, people were saying, stop prophesying. Don't speak to us. You know, we don't want to hear this message, uh, verse 6. Don't prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. We're God's people. We're specially endowed and enriched by God. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? I mean, my goodness, we have on our money in God we trust. Is God going to judge us? He couldn't possibly judge us. Don't talk to us about Scripture, they say. Uh, some of you may have seen the column by Cal Thomas just recently. He was writing about the so-called domestic partnership law, law that was almost enacted uh, uh, in San Francisco some months ago. It gave gays, gay couples the same rights as uh, heterosexual couples. The uh, law was overturned, I understand, by the voters of San Francisco, but Thomas wrote about the law, and he commented on the number of cases in, uh, 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 that the Supreme Court, in which the Supreme Court had made decisions about traditional family units, and in all of those cases, it's the, it is the traditional family unit, one man, one woman together for life. At the end of a rather lengthy column, he said, this is not an innovation. This is nothing new. Uh, Genesis 2.24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and, and they shall become one flesh. And that's the marriage unit, the traditional marriage unit. That's all he said. Well, ABC, uh, producer from ABC's um, Good Morning America called him on the phone, asked him if he would appear on the show uh, a couple of days hence, along with one of the board of supervisors from San Francisco. He agreed to do so. They were going to send him a plane ticket. plane ticket never did come. So he called, asked what had happened. They said, well, you've been canceled. And he said, why? He said, well, one of the senior producers told us, we don't want you in the program because this guy quotes scripture. Striking, isn't it? The, the media will permit uh, any amount of filth, any sort of perversion. You can use any four-letter word, any sort of uh, scat word or bathroom word you want to use on, on television 
but you can't quote scripture. See? Don't prophesy, they say. And the, what goes around comes around. We're, we're seeing it today. Uh, I don't have time to comment on uh, uh, any more on this section, although I chuckled out loud when I read verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I'll prophet, prophesy for you concerning wine and beer, he'll be a, just the prophet for this people. In other words, if a wine connoisseur appears on their program, they'll hear him out. But uh, you better not come and quote scripture at them. But in the midst of this uh, judgment, here's a word of salvation for their souls. That's what the prophets sometimes did. In the, in the bleakest predictions, when everything seems to be, to be mo- most dark and, and the future seems to be most difficult, there's a, there's a little flash of light. I'll surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. The breaker is the first ram to leap out of the gate, and all the other sheep follow. So here's the prediction of the, of the Messiah, the breaker, the one who will take you out of your confinement, and uh, he'll set you free. I think the what what uh, appeals to me most about these predictions, these little moments of truth and moments of light, are that God's attitude toward us is not conditioned by our behavior, but rather by his love. It's not our beauty that draws his attention. It's his loving kindness. And he's going to save Judah regardless of her state of being. Now in chapter 3, he begins to indict the leaders. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Basically what he says is you're a bunch of bullies. Uh, He likens Israel to a little boy that goes off to school and bully picks on him and chases him home. And uh, when he gets to the house expecting protection from his father, his father comes outside the house and joins the bully in beating up on the little boy. And uh, he said, this is the sort of thing that you must not do. The leaders are the people on whom Israel leaned for judgment and whose counsel they followed and whose values they trusted. That's the way it was supposed to be. But their leaders were in cahoots with those that were trying to destroy them. And then he indicts the prophets in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. As for the, lead, uh, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they, pro- they proclaim peace. In other words, they will do whatever they're paid to do. But as for me, he says, verse 8, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. He says, There is an answer, and it's God's word to you. He says uh, pretty much what Jeremiah says whether they hear, whether they refuse to hear, at least they'll know that a prophet has been among them. I'm going to speak out, he declares. Verse 12, therefore, therefore, because of you, because of the corrupt leaders, the prophets, the priests, the kings, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Zion was the location of the, of the temple. Today it's uh, the hill on which the mosque of Omar is located, the, uh, uh, the uh, Arab temple there. But uh, in, in Micah's day, that's where the, the temple, Israel's temple, was located. And he predicts, middle of the 8th century, 
740 or so at this time, 740 B.C. He predicts an event that will take place in 586. In 586, the Babylonians surrounded the city. They broke down the walls. They burned it, blackened the entire city, destroyed the temple, pried all the stones apart so not, not one stone was left standing upon another, reduced the entire temple uh, mount to uh, rubble, cleared off the stones, and then they actually plowed the field, sowed it uh, with uh, grain, uh, completely desecrated the, uh, the site. So what Micah predicted in the 8th century uh, was fulfilled in the 6th century. Because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. But that's not all. Because he now sees that God's going to begin to rebuild. Having destroyed, he will rebuild. Chapter 4. Now we have a turning point in the book. In the last days, Micah says, this is what will be true. The last days, as we've seen, is not some far-off eschatological period. It is the messianic era. It's the day in which we live. Remember when we studied Hebrews? And I pointed out that chapter 1, verse 1 reads, God, who in various ways spoke through the prophets at various times, has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. So in Jewish thought, the last days was the period when Messiah would come. Our Lord Jesus, we're living in these last days. When he, came, when he comes, Micah tells us, he's going to start to set things right. Now, Micah saw three things. Everything from this point on revolves around three visions that Micah saw. The first is of a mountain. Remember he saw the Temple Mount desecrated and sown as a field and, and eventually lying fallow and then being overtaken by, uh, by weeds. Thickets, he says, will, it will be overgrown with thickets. But in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Mount Zion is a little hill, about 2,700 feet high. It's, it's not very conspicuous. You wouldn't even notice it's a hill because you're, in a, you're up a couple of thousand feet by the time you drive into, into Jerusalem. It's just a little mountain. But uh, Micah predicts that it will be raised above all the other hills. It will be the chief of the mountains. And many nations will come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways there so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then down in uh, verse 6, In that day, that is in the last day, declares the Lord, I'll gather the lame, literally those that are limping. I will assemble the outcasts, the pariahs, the people that are on the outside, the, the refuse of the world. And those I have brought to grief because of their sin. I will make the lame a remnant. Those far away, uh, the NIV says driven away, but actually it's the term far, those far away. A strong nation. That's us. The Gentiles were the ones that were far away until we were made near by the blood of Christ. And the Lord will rule. Here the emphasis is placed strongly on the verb. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forevermore. 
Now Zion is that little little hill on which the mosque of Omar rests today. It was a place where the temple was uh, was situated. It was destroyed by the Babylonians when, for seventy years. The top of the hill lay fallow, and then. Uh, when the exiles came back, they built a little dinky chapel. That's all they could do. They didn't have any money to do anything better. They couldn't embellish it with gold. They couldn't hire Phoenician artisans as Solomon did. It was just a just a little little shack, really, in which they worshipped. And that was the place that Herod embellished. He enlarged it. He glorified it. And that was the place to which our Lord came. And that's the place to which the lame and the halt and the blind and the dumb came and gathered and he touched them and he healed them and, and he did more than heal their bodies. He, he healed their broken souls. That's where Jesus taught. He taught in, in Solomon's porch there on the top of Mount Zion and all nations literally gathered to him. He, the, the lame and the outcast gathered to him because those were the very people that he came to seek. He, came to, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He ate and drank with, with publicans and sinners and prostitutes and people that couldn't quite get it all together, those that were, that were struggling and limping along. And, and, and we're among them. Who are we kidding? We, we belong with this motley crowd. He's talking about us. Because we came to the place where we recognized our deep and desperate need. We realized we couldn't do anything for ourselves. And we, we gathered around our Lord on, on Mount Zion. Mount Zion, you know, is, is not just a mountain in Jerusalem. Ironically, if you go there today, they'll point to the wrong mountain as Mount Zion. They'll say it's a little hill off to the, to the west. It really is the spot that's located under the, the, te- the old temple mount. Um, but uh, Mike is not talking about that physical location. He's really talking about spiritual Mount Zion. Remember again when we were studying Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews said, you've not come to Mount Sinai. In other words, not to the law where the earth shook when God's word was given and where there was so much terror and, and, and so much fear. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. God's people are gathered around, around the Lamb. It's the spiritual mountain to which we gather today. It may be that someday a temple will be built on Mount Zion. I don't know. I'm very agnostic about what God will ultimately do with Israel. But I know from the New Testament that Mount Zion today is the spiritual mountain around which we gather. All of us. Some of us have to drag ourselves into his presence. We have to limp into his presence. But he gathers us in. He accepts us. Carolyn has a favorite little story she tells about a little boy that went into a pet shop. And he's looking for a dog. And uh, looked in the window and he saw this little pup in the corner. And he said, I'll take that one. And the man said, I don't think you want that dog, son. He's crippled. The little boy pulled up his uh, pants legs and showed uh, the pet shop owner the braces on his legs. And he said, well, I'm crippled too. We're all like that. We can identify. And the Lord understands cripples like us. And uh, we like those people that that Micah mentions here, gather around him from all over the world, and we find the help that we need from him. Now, that's the first thing he saw was a mountain. second thing he saw was a watchtower, verse 8. I'm reading chapter 4, verse 8. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, 
O hill of the suburb of Zion. These, uh, the little suburbs that were located around the larger cities were called daughters of that city. It's a common idiom in the Old Testament. O hill of the suburb of Zion, unto you the former dominion, uh, this, this refers to David's rule. They always had this deep nostalgia for David and for his rule. That's the former dominion because by and large he did things right. He was a good king. The former dominion will be restored to you. A kingdom will come to the suburb of Jerusalem. Now, uh, most of the translations say uh, uh, watchtower of the flock, which is actually a, it's a translation of the terms. But uh, this is a location. This is a geographical location. Migdal Eder was a town, a little, little settlement, actually. If you, if you visit the Holy Land today and you drive south from Jerusalem along the crest, the, the ridge that, that runs north and south through the country, and you're making your way down toward Hebron, you go around a corner, you come up on top of a little swelling, a little hill. So that's what's referred to here as the Ophel, a little swelling, a little hill. And right there is a little town called Migdal Eder. One of the suburbs of Jerusalem. It's a place where Jacob pastored his flock. Genesis tells us it's famous for a, a good pasture. It's where many of the shepherds gathered, took their flocks in the wintertime, grazed them up there. They're protected from the wind, and, and they could find water up there. Traditionally, one of the best uh, spots to shepherd your sheep in the wintertime. And that's where the shepherds were when the angels announced to them, that Jesus Christ was born. It was a big doll editor. And all of a sudden, this prophecy comes alive. As for you, O big doll editor, O hill of the suburb of Zion, this is one of the suburbs of Jerusalem, unto you it shall come, the former dominion. A kingdom will come to the suburb of Jerusalem. And the angels appeared to this raspy bunch of shepherds. You know, we, we've sort of sanctified shepherds, but they were a pretty crude, rough bunch. More like steel workers in the Waihe County buckaroos than they are the sanitized versions of shepherds that we th- think about, tough guys. And uh, it was to these people that, that the angels appeared. And they said, the Messiah's come. And here's how you find him. You find him lying in a feed trough. And uh, so they went off looking. You know, they didn't look in the resorts and spas and the beautiful homes down there in, in Bethlehem because you don't find feed troughs in places like that. They went to feed lots and cow pens and finally found the Lord Jesus in a cave that, uh, in, into which uh, shepherds drive their, their sheep at night to protect him. And they found the Christ child lying in this... Uh, in this feed trough. That was the sign. He's very close to them. Actually, Migdal Eder is only about a thousand yards from Bethlehem. He was just that close. It reminds me of uh, what Paul said that our Lord is only as close to us as our mouth and our heart. He's not very far away. All you have to do is seek him and ask for him. And there he is. There he is. Then he saw one other place. Um, he says, It's not going to happen now. There's going to be a period of time when you have no king. You're going to go to Babylon, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. It's interesting because Babylon was not a world power then in the 8th century. Syria was. Babylon was a minor principality, but 
But you see, Micah saw the future with real clarity, and you realize that it was Babylon that would come and destroy the city. He says, now many nations have gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, let her eyes gloat over Israel. But they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plans. Something better is is coming. Now, he says, chapter 5, verse 1, marshal your troops, O city of troops, warlike Zion. All right, get your militia together. Gather all of your your armed uh, men. For a siege is laid against us. They'll strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. In other words, all of your defense systems will not work. They will humiliate your king. That's the idea of striking someone on the cheek is a picture of shaming them, humiliating them. Which is exactly what happened to Judah's kings. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, they were all humiliated, dragged off in chains to, to Babylon. And the interesting thing about this prediction is that it becomes very clear that the Messiah would not be found in Jerusalem because the royal family would not be there. There'd be no royal family in Jerusalem. The, uh, the child that's to be born would not be born in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Ephrathah is a region in Judah. We would say the county, I suppose, today. Though you're too small to be among the clans of Judah. Uh, the word for clans is a thousand. In other words, this city was uh, less than a thousand people. Smaller than Cuna. Half the size of Cuna. Uh, size of Idaho City, perhaps. Though you're too small to be among the clans, the numbered clans of Judah. Listen to this. Out of you. That is, out of your population. Not Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem but out of you, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In other words, he begins in Bethlehem, but he has no beginning. The Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's one who was born in Bethlehem who never had a beginning. He's the Alpha and Omega. You see, they could, the, 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 the uh, scribes could not understand this passage. The rabbis never thoroughly understood it. But we can understand it because we know that it was our Lord Jesus who was the Word, who was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. This takes us back to the promise in Genesis 3 of the, of the seed of the woman that would come. Again, it's put in this odd way, something you wouldn't expect in a Semitic culture. It's she who will give birth when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. That's us folks. We're the rest of his brothers, those outside, those that have been brought near because of, of the cross. And he will stand and shepherd his flock. He's not a tyrant. He doesn't rule by fear. He's a good shepherd. And uh, he will do so in the strength of the Lord. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. In the majesty or in the authority of the name of the Lord, his God. Again, here is that God who has a God. A kind of 
arrangement that's inexplicable to us until, until the incarnation. And then it all makes sense. And they, that's us, will live securely. For then he will be great. That's the verse that the uh, angel quotes in Luke 1 when he says to Mary, He will be, will be great. And he will sit on the throne of, of his father David forever. And uh, his greatness will reach to the end of the earth. And he will be their peace. Shalom. That's that untranslatable Hebrew word that means balance. Everything's okay. We're all right. We're secure. We have worth. We have value. Everything is set right. Shalom. He's the prince of peace. Now you know how Jesus got there. Again, it wasn't any accident. They weren't uh, on vacation and just happened to be in Bethlehem when the baby came. Uh, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. And uh, Joseph was a carpenter, and he's probably loath to leave his job because uh, carpenters don't make any money when they're not working, generally. But there was a census that was taken, a census for purposes of taxation. Here God used the Roman Empire in order to bring his uh, son into the world. Mary and Joseph made their way down to Bethlehem. Uh, back in 1927, an archaeologist digging in Ankara, Turkey, uncovered a plaque that... Uh, uh, authenticates, if we need authentication, this uh, particular census. But the interesting thing about the plaque is that it dated it four years before the, uh, the actual event, before the birth of Christ. They now know that the Roman citizens living in, in Syria, which is the region that uh, Bethlehem is located in, fought that census through the courts, trying to put a stop to it. And it was delayed for four years, and then it was enacted, finally, and uh, it just happened to be at the time when Jesus, when Mary was about to give birth to Jesus. And they just happened to be in Bethlehem when the baby was born. And 750 years before, Micah said that's exactly where it will happen. Now, I just want to say this in, in, in closing. In Matthew, we're told that the Magi came from the east seeking the king of the Jews. You know the story. They came to Jerusalem from uh, what we would call Iran today, they, uh, Persia at one point in, in history, from that part of the, of the Middle East. There weren't three of them. That's just tradition. There were more than two, and there could have been 50 of them for all we know. They weren't kings. Uh, actually, they weren't from the Orient, uh, so the, the song is wrong on all three counts. Uh, they were from the Middle East, what we'd call the Middle East today. And they weren't kings, they were magicians, they were wizards, they were sorcerers, they were astrologers, not believers at all. They came because uh, 1,400 years before, a, a wacky old uh, wizard by the name of Balaam had predicted that a star would rise over Judah and that he would be the king of the Jews. That's found in Numbers 22. He wasn't a believer either. Sort of like the donkey that God used to speak. God used uh, Balaam to uh, predict the future. And somehow that made its way, that prophecy made its way into their magic books. And these magicians began to look and wait. And finally there was a constellation of stars or planets that was right. And they set off and 
They were on foot. Took them a while to get there. They got to Jerusalem. And they said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Scared Herod out of his wits because he was the king of the Jews. And uh, Luke tells us that all the people were frightened because they knew what kind of person Herod was. They knew that he would uh, try to search that so-called king out and, and slay him. And you know what he did do. He, he tried to kill all the infants uh, from two years uh, old and younger. Uh, I can't help but think that the stars, if you're into the stars, the stars will inevitably take you to the wrong king in the wrong place. The stars brought the Magi to Herod. Herod didn't know where the king of the Jews was to be born. He wasn't a religious man particularly. So he went to the biblical scholars and he said, where is the Messiah to be born? And they quoted that passage in Matthew 5 that we just read in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now I want you to look at the way Matthew quotes this. I don't know how many times I read this. And I never noticed what Matthew does. He changes the translation. He paraphrases it. And I think what he did, he doesn't quote, I've mentioned before this Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that a lot of the, a lot of the quotations in the New Testament are taken from. And sometimes they're a little different than the Old Testament because they were quoting from a common translation. He doesn't quote from the Septuagint because the Septuagint follows Micah 5, the Hebrew text, exactly. What he does is paraphrase it. And notice what he does. In the Greek text, he inserts one word in there that changes the meaning of the whole text. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For... What is it that made uh, Bethlehem bigger than life? Out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You see, from Matthew's standpoint, that little town was no longer insignificant. It was by no means least. If you go to Jerusalem now, it's probably one of the first places you'll want to go. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, you're sort of touristed to death and. Uh, I don't know, something about it. Your heart just yearns to go to Bethlehem. It's not much better there, but but at least the the pilgrims just just flock to the place. Sometimes you can't even get into the church that's housed over the, that sits over the the site of the supposed nativity. Uh, They flock to that place. Everybody knows about Bethlehem. Everyone. Now what happened? Well, a little child was born there, and it changed that city forever. And I want to tell you something. If Christ is born in you, then you're not in any wise the least of the saints. You have become a very, very significant person. That's where your worth comes from. Perhaps this year, you you look back, it's been a devastating for you in terms of your own self-worth and your ego has taken a beating. Maybe this is the year your spouse left or you discovered that your children were using drugs or alcoholic or you've been struggling with some sin over and over again and you occasionally win the battle and then sometimes you lose it and you want to see your, yourself rid of it and you've, you've taken God's side against the sin but you still find yourself failing and, and struggling and your, your sense of self-worth is at an all-time low. just want you to understand That your worth comes not from what you do, not from your behavior, 
Not from how well you're living the Christian life, but from the, from the fact that Jesus Christ has been born in you. That makes you an infinitely worthwhile person. Also means you can have an influence on your world. Just think of what influence that spot, that place has, Bethlehem has in the world today. Because it was the place in which Jesus was born. The same is true of you. God will draw people to you just like he draws pilgrims to Bethlehem today. So they can see the, the Christ child that's been born in you. So don't take yourself lightly. You're not the least of the saints. Let's pray. For many of us, Lord, this has been a very difficult year. We come to you feeling battered and beat up, and we're not sure we could make it to the end of this year. For some, this is not at all a joyful Christian a Christmas as we look forward to uh, families separated and not enough money to uh, do some of the things that we'd like to do. And, and we don't have the traditional happy family that should be gathered around us on this holiday occasion. And we're inclined to uh, get depressed feel sorry for ourselves and uh, uh, to uh, just not know what to do with ourselves. Help us to remember that our names are written in heaven, that we have infinite worth to you. If there had been only one of us, you would have died for us. And help us to see that significance, that eternal absolute significance that we have because you have been born in us. Thank you for this reminder this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.